The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. And as we started the other evenings, we can start this evening with to see if there's any questions anyone has or any reports about their meditation they'd like to mention. So my question is about you in your personal life. Since you've been doing meditation, mindfulness for a long time, do you ever get like really angry? <laughs> or, or, that, or that just, you know, you're able to like diffuse the situation, you know, in all the cases? So do I ever get r- really angry? No. <laughs> <laughs> the... Um, yeah, I think I'm still capable of getting really angry. The, it seems that, um, uh, I don't know what you think of this, but m- maybe some of you say, of course, if I say it. Um, uh, I've gotten angry with my children. And I get really angry when I've gotten super frustrated. I remember once telling my son, I don't know how old he was, five or something, and saying to him, if you continue doing that, what you're doing, I'm going to be angry. <laughs> and and I thought that was being you know make, gonna make make an impression and be able to stay calm and you know and that would be enough I wouldn't you know, nothing you know and he looked at me kind of stopped and looked at me and said Dad you're already angry <laughs> <laughs> so it does happen and. Uh, and it doesn't happen as much as it used to. Anger and resentment was something that kind of seethed in me a lot when I was younger and, and was a kind of, kind of common kind of theme. And it's pretty rare now. And, um, and uh, when it does happen, I have much more skills in knowing how to be mindful for it and how not to give into it, get lost in it, how to stay mindful, wise, in the situation, I think I'm much. Wi- if I do get angry, I'm much wiser in the anger, so that I don't uh, do the things that I later regret. Say say things, uh, stay balanced in it. The um, I've had the experience of anger ar- uh, arising in my mind, and uh, the mind being a little bit like Teflon, and the anger just doesn't stick anywhere. It just kind of like goes right through. Yes. I just had a question about the green, uh, press the green button or the little green light coming on. It's on already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it on? Yeah, it is on. Okay. Oh, yeah. There we go. Um, I had a question about uh, the time um, of meditation during the day. I've noticed a few days doing it in the morning or in the evening that there is a distinct difference, at least for me, uh, in terms of the satisfaction of the of the session. Right. Uh, the evening seems to be much much better. Morning, I feel is more distracted. Does it matter when we do it? Is it just worthwhile to do it, with, whether it feels distracted in the morning or or the evening? What's your recommendation? Um, is it is it better to do it when when one is feels less distracted? 
So a good question. And um, I think for many people living uh, lay lives, work lives, urban lives, like many of you here, um, uh, there's a challenge sometimes in keeping a regular meditation practice going every day. And so uh, you should probably do it at the time of day where you're most likely to keep doing it over time. And so it might not be the most satisfying time to do, you know, in the short term, but it might be the, uh, the time that you, you know you can keep doing it. And then you'll get the benefits further down the line. They won't be so immediate, maybe. So that, that's, that's one criteria. Uh, the other criteria is um, certainly satisfaction, you know, what's nicest for you. Because if it's nice for you, then you're more likely to do it. So that's uh, certainly a criteria that's valid. Though sometimes um, what's most helpful uh, in terms of uh, personal growth and development and, and the kind of qualities we want to develop in, in a Buddhist practice is uh, sometimes you, you don't want to shy away from the difficulties. And so it might be, it might be really interesting to actually meditate when it's not easy. And maybe you can't get concentrated, can't get settled and calm because there's a lot of agitation certain times of the day. And so you want to spend some time really getting to know that agitation. Uh, some people who meditate think the point of meditation is just to get calm. But when mindfulness meditation, the point is not just to get calm. It's just, there's a kind of a higher purpose, which is to really understand yourself well. And then through that understanding, learn how to be free. So sometimes you get, uh, you, you, you'll discover more freedom of, uh, when you meditate with difficulties than when you meditate when it's easy. Yes, please. Um, in your book, there's a short chapter on patience. And under that chapter, there was um, a termino- something about perseverance. And I thought that was interesting because I never thought about perseverance and patience uh-huh. being related. Yes. They almost seem opposing. Uh-huh. Oh. And I wanted well, uh, why, why, to why hear you, you. For you, why are they opposing? I think patience in my head is about waiting, um, I mean, being patient. And perseverance is more about, I'm going to push through it um, mm. to get to it. I see. I see. I just wanted to hear uh, yeah. more about that concept because I kept I reading it over and over again. Well, sometimes we want to patiently persevere. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the important thing is to keep at it step by step. Uh, not to look at the top of the mountain, but just look at the step you're walking and take care of that because the mountain's too, you know, too difficult whatever, there might be a lot of challenges. And um, so you have, but the task is to keep going. But you have to be very patient that it's going really slow, there's no obvious results, you just keep going. So uh, uh, perseverance is a very, very important quality. Um, not to give up, not to give in, but just uh, uh, stick with it. Does, does that answer your question well enough? Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. It's just something that struck me in reading yeah. the book. It was like one of the pages that stood out the most. Yeah. So I was, I'm like, trying to learn more about that. Some meditation teachers say that perseverance is one of the most important qualities for meditation, because you just want to you just want to keep at it day in day out, ups and downs of life. That uh, you get the greatest value from it when you have this perseverance and. And uh, sooner or later, uh, it's my, my theory that any spiritual tradition that's worth its salt, um, sooner or later it will be very difficult to be, do, to do, to be part of. So, uh, if you're not challenged by your spiritual tradition, it's probably not a spiritual tradition. And so it's all very nice in the beginning. Oh, so nice. Dalai Lama. And 
had these nice, nice robes, nice, you know, and stuff like getting caught, like getting, all these, you know, people read this book, people read this book inspired. And that's all very good, it's all nice. But uh, if you keep at it for a while, so, uh, periodically, at time, 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 time to time, your whole, uh, your whole engagement meditation, if you're all with Buddhism, will be very challenging. And, uh, and uh, that's the time to persevere, actually. That's the time to really begin, that's kind of something really important is beginning. And what some people do when things get difficult in a spiritual tradition or with a therapist or something, they go somewhere else. Actually, that's actually a time where it gets interesting. So don't be surprised if it's challenging. Challenges are not bad, difficult, but you need to persevere. Thanks. Yes, in the outer hall there, Jim? Hi, I have a, a question. I've been doing my daily meditation with the Open Heart Project um, audio, uh-huh. and she uses three dings at the end. Uh-huh. And I'm having a consistent response that it's after those three dings that I finally relax and go really deeply into my meditation. Oh, nice. Yeah, it happens. And yes. I don't get it. Yeah, that, 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 some people have that experience. Uh, so I think rather than me explain, I'll maybe say some things, but it, uh, before I try to explain why that might be, it's probably better to say, I shouldn't explain. Because uh, uh, the whole mindfulness enterprise works better if you look at that phenomenon and try to understand what's happening better for yourself. Uh, understand what you're doing before the bells, understand what happens after the bells. And then you can start understanding what's the differences and what's going on. Now, what's, that to explain, what so- happens to some people is that there is a certain kind of self-conscious effort, a task to do the meditation. And the way that they do meditation comes along with, the, uh, with uh, how they do other tasks. I have to be successful, I have to prove myself, I have to, whatever. I have to be, you know. And, um, and that very efforting, that kind of effort, interferes with the relaxing deeply. And so when the bell rings, uh, the effort to be a good meditator drops away, and then you settle in. So if this rings somehow, somehow like this, you know, this part of your study, you have to look and see. And it's po- possible that, uh, for some people, that their meditation really uh, takes off when uh, they don't stop trying to be, stop trying to do it well. Because it kind of just kind of stirs things up or tightens us up. Hi. Um, this has been happening to me um, the last couple of days when I've been sitting um, instead of thoughts, I'll get music, or um, you know, it just be either notes or it'll be words and notes. And I have a music background, yeah. and then I try to sh- to come back to my breathing, and it kind of still keeps going yeah. on. Yeah, and I've never really had that experience except for the past few days. It's not an uncommon experience for people to have. Some people to have, and um, you know, they, they, you can just treat it like you would a thought. So you can uh, be aware of it for a moment, let go of it, and come back to the breath. And so it might just be a habit that needs to be broken. So you just let go and come back, let go and come back. And with time, it settles away. If it's more persistent, then sometimes you want to bring attention. And just for a while, just like you, you would uh, look, think, thinking right in the eye, like we talked about last week. So you look the music right in the eye. Say, music, I see you. I recognize you. This is music. And somehow that clear recognition... Um, separates us a little bit from the involvement with it, and maybe then it settles away. Uh, sometimes music uh, during meditation or even in daily life, kind of going on in the mind, 
is an, is an attempt for our minds to get some kind of benefit. And so one of the things to look at is what benefit you get from the music. Some people it's soothing, sometimes it's protective, sometimes people it's distracting from other things. Um, uh, they don't have to face other, you know, their, themselves if they listen to your music. And so, you're, so you, if you, only if you understand what benefit you're trying to get can you say, well, this is actually not a good way to get that benefit. It's not really useful for me, and it's easier to put aside. And sometimes what's interesting to do with music, is if it's very persistent and recurring over, over again, is to um, uh, bring careful attention to what happens just before the music begins. And um, uh, I did, there was one longtime meditator who had, was, uh, had music a lot, especially in her meditation retreats. During, uh, she had a music background as well. And I gave her that exercise. What happens just before the music begins? So she came back some days later and said that she noticed, only, what she noticed is that the music began, always began at a transition. Going into a new room, getting up for meditation, going down to meditation, starting a new task. Anytime there's a transition. And then when she saw that, then she saw that there was a subtle anxiety. And the music was a way of kind of soothing the anxiety. And once she saw that, then she didn't really need to do the music anymore. So, so there's a whole interesting area of exploration. Okay, one, one more, please. So you can move the mic up here in the front. You had mentioned it in the first class, I think, but could you talk a little bit more about walking meditation oh, and walking meditation, beginners yeah. and if yeah. that's something, we is that advanced? A, or? Advanced, <laughs> no. We have a handout, and uh, Diana afterwards can probably, we have copies, I think, don't we? We have copies of a handout on walking me- instructions for walking meditation, and Diana can give you some at the end. Um, it's not particularly advanced, it's just a different way of doing it. It's done a little bit differently because we're do- doing walking rather than sitting. Uh, whereas in sitting, the center of gravity, kind of the center of the meditation is breathing, and walking, the center of the attention is the feet walking. So the sens- the sens- just like in breathing, we're aware of the sensations of the body as it breathes, in, in walking, we're, we're aware of the sensations of the feet as they step. And the mind wanders off, we come back to that. If there's something really strong, like emotions or sounds or thoughts going on, then with walking, sometimes it's good just to stop in your tracks, close your eyes, and take stock. Just kind of be mindful of it for a while. And sometimes when you stop and really address it, really recognize it, then it can recede to the background, and then you can begin with the walking again. Um, it's a good thing to, it's a very nice thing to skill to learn because um, most people spend uh, you know, a fair amount of time walking in their daily life. And so this uh, shows you how to integrate uh, med- meditation into daily life more. Um, so I'll tell you a story. There was a, was a, a wonderful uh, the colleague, teacher, named Kamala Masters. And she, um, uh, for somehow she had four kids and she was raising them alone. So was, but somehow or other, she managed to go on a meditation retreat with an Indian mindfulness teacher named uh, Manindra. And uh, at the end of the retreat, he said what most teachers will say, it's really important to sit every day. Meditate every day, he would say, with great passion probably. And she went up to him afterwards and said, not, not possible for me. And he said, well, everyone can meditate every day. And, uh, you know, just, you have to miss carve out the time. He said, you don't understand. It's not possible. So, but he said, no, everyone, you can always figure it out if it's important. 
So um, she invited him to stay at her house. (laughs) And so he did. And within a day or two, he said, Oh, (laughs) and you can't meditate. It's true. It's true. But he, uh, he said, but I'll show you what you can do. And he went by side as he went around their house and did her tasks. And, um, and so when you wash the dishes, you wash your dishes mindfully. And, um, and then uh, and do all the tasks, just really do it mindfully. You know, one-pointed, just do that. And don't let your mind wander off. Just like meditation, if your mind wanders off, you come back. When you do dishes, your mind wanders off, you come back. Just you and the dishes. You know, just like you and the breath, just that, just, just dishes. And the, you know, the mind, strong emotions, you pay attention to that, then you go back to the dishes, just, just be there. But then he said he, that there was a, there's a hallway in her house, a small hallway between rooms, in the middle of the house, I guess. But he took her into this little hallway and said, every time you step, you have, you have to go through this hallway a lot throughout the day. Every time you step into this hallway, this is your meditation, your meditation hall. And you, you walk in meditation in the two, three, four steps you had to do. And so that became a walking place for walking meditation. And she did that every day, uh, you know, many times a day. And it took her many, many, many years before she was forced, she was able to go on retreat, meditation retreat again. And finally she went to a meditation retreat and she was more prepared. And she it just goes, it was a duck to, it was a duck to walk when she went to the meditation. She, she had so much uh, strength of mindfulness and constant dropped really quick, really quickly and deeply into it. So walking meditation is great. And um, some people, you know, it works better than doing meditation. I've used it when I've had a lot of restless energy uh, or been angry. Um, I find that then doing walking meditation holds all that energy, holds the anger in a much nicer way than sitting. It kind of gives more free energy of anger just to be there and to flow and, and be held and be seen than sometimes it does for sitting. So it's a good thing. Okay. So, I thought it would be nice this evening uh, as a meditation to um, uh, do kind of a review of the instructions I've given over these weeks and as part of the meditation. meditation. And before I'd like to offer you, uh, for you a simile or a little analogy that I often teach that, you know, sometimes getting a little analogy or a little metaphor image sometimes can help you get the idea of how this is done. So um, you've gone for a long hike, done your work of the day, whatever, and uh, you can take a break and you go sit on the edge of a river bank and under a nice oak tree and in the shade and it's comfortable and you have a nice lunch and maybe you have a nice nap. You wake up and you're just content and happy. You don't have to go anywhere right away. And so you're just content and happy and so nice to be sitting under the the oak tree, back against the trunk, watching the river, just going by, just walking by. Nice. And then you notice coming down the river is a, a big New Orleans showboat with music and dancing and every possible pleasure a human person could imagine. They're just beckoning, come, come. And the next thing you know, you're on the showboat. And you're been and you're going down the river and you actually you're on, you've been on the showboat for days. 
and you finally kind of like, what, what am I doing here? I was, such, I was so happy and peaceful and content up there on the, on the riverbank. So you've managed to get off the boat and you managed to trek back up to the oak tree and you're finally able to get there and ah, it's so good to be here. It was fun for a little while in the showboat, but this is so much more sublime, so much nicer, just so peaceful and this is good. But then another boat comes down. It's a war boat fighting the good cause. And guns are blaring and, and you, you, you know, it's the, it's the cause. So next thing you know, you're on the warboat, traveling down the river. It takes maybe a few weeks to realize you're on the warboat. What am I doing here? I was so, so happy there under the, under the oak tree. So you make your way back to the oak tree. And then you're, there's a <clears throat> decrepit little raft that's just about bit poor, really poor, poorly made, you know, something you have so much pity for. And, uh, oh, life is hard. It's hard to be in the water. It's dangerous. It's about to sink. And, oh, it's, everything's difficult. And, and the self-pity is so alluring. And the next thing you know, you're on the boat, on the raft. Oh, it's so hard. Oh, no, I can't do this. It's poor me. And it takes you a few years to realize you're on that boat. <laughs> And so then you, 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 you pull yourself off the boat finally and make your way back up to the, you know, the oak tree and you sit there. And maybe if you're lucky, after getting on a few of those boats, after a while you say, you know, you say, oh, maybe I have to. Maybe I can just watch the boat go by. So meditation is kind of like sitting under the oak tree. And as you get settled, it takes a while, it's not, you can't do this automatically, but as you get settled, and your mindfulness gets stronger, <clears throat> you'll be visited by, by a variety of thoughts. <clears throat> and thoughts, feelings, ideas, images, different things will come along. Uh, feelings about yourself, the good cause, fantasies about pleasure, poor me, all kinds of things will come along. And uh, of course they'll come along. It's your human life. This is what life is. Life is but you have to go on. So what a meditation is, is to learn is to learn to recognize what's happening, but then just let it keep flowing by. Don't get involved. And, and not getting involved means you also don't, you're not for or against it. You're just there and you recognize it. The alternative to being for and against is to recognize. It's the middle way or it's the free way, freeing way. So to really recognize, oh, this is what's happening. And then to kind of, to the best of your ability, stay on the riverbank. And it might have only one foot on the river and one foot of the boat. That's better, that's better than being on the boat. And so, um, so as you would do this meditation, you might be a little bit careful the boats you, the boats you get on. And uh, see if you can, you know, it's okay. I mean, that's what people do. That's what minds do. They get on boats like that. It doesn't really serve you. It's not really moving toward freedom meditation if you're getting on boats. Because we want to learn how not to be entangled or caught in our experience. So you're not bad because you get on boats. It's not wrong, it, but it's just not free, freeing. So we try to recognize and see and try to stay, stay on the safe riverbank. Stay on the solid ground, which is the ground of mindfulness, of awareness, being present. Okay? So uh, before we uh, do the little sitting, if you'd like to stand and stretch your legs, and you're welcome. And,
So here you are, taking a comfortable, alert posture. And the practice of mindfulness meditation begins in the very act of being mindful of your posture and finding a posture that feels balanced, alert, upright, that feels like you can stay still for the period of time. And then gently close your eyes. And then it's useful to begin by taking some long, slow, deep breaths. As you exhale, maybe more deeply than usual, long exhale. Letting go of tension, letting go of the thoughts, concerns of the day. Exhaling and settling into your body. And as you breathe in deeply, to feel your ribcage expand, to feel your body from the inside, the shoulders lift. Let that deep breath help you make a connection to your body. And then letting your breathing return to normal. And the idea in meditate, one idea of meditation is to have the mind and the body be at the same place at the same time. If you're thinking about something elsewhere, other time, other place. In a sense, your mind is not in the same place as your body. And since the body is not going to go anywhere, it's the task of letting the mind be here, in this body, present for your experience. And it's useful at the beginning of a meditation to scan through your body to see if there's any obvious places that you can relax. Maybe starting at the top of your head, your forehead and eyes. Letting there be some movement of softening, easing up. Softening around the jaw. As you exhale, softening around the shoulders and the shoulder blade. Sometimes it's nice to flap your elbow slightly. It helps maybe the elbows loosen a teeny bit, the shoulders loosen. Sometimes it's possible to soften the Or to soften, soften and belly, your belly hang forward, down. And if it's easy enough, you can put yourself at ease, or at least be a little, e- be a little easy with how far. 
It's okay how you are. Easing up a bit. And then within your body, as part of your bodily experience, become aware of your breathing. Become aware of how your body experiences breathing. Maybe the movements of the chest or the belly. The sensations of the air going in and out through your nostrils. Expansion and contraction of the torso as you breathe. And you might find it helpful to ever so slightly, ever so quietly in the mind, Say the words in as you breathe in and out as you breathe out to help you stay with your breathing. And if you find your mind drifting off in thought, getting on a boat, it's, it's okay. You don't have to be worried or upset about that. But when you notice it, begin again with your breathing. And there's a way in which, in this practice, we try to trust Entrust ourselves, just breathing, breathing with what is. Letting the breathing be at the center of it all. As you exhale, exhale, letting go of your thoughts so, so you can better feel and be with breathing.
And if there's sensations in your body that become more compelling than breathing, it could be or an itch or a feeling of pleasure, calmly let go of your breathing and be aware of that sensation as if that becomes the subject of your meditation. Recognizing it for what it is. Seeing if, seeing if you can be really easy with it. Not being forced it. But experimenting with just being simply aware of it. If there are emotions, or feelings, or things, or attitudes, desires, or aversions, restlessness, if any of these things arise and they're more compelling than the breathing, it's okay. Stay on the dry shore of the river's bank. Don't get involved, but see them for what they are. You can even stop paying attention to breathing. To take a few moments to let the, your emotions or attitude be where you cultivate present moment awareness. Some thinking is not equal, thinking is persistent. Then you can let that become the object of your mindfulness. Don't have to get on, have to get on the bot of the thoughts. But you could see clearly there's a thinking going on. Planning or remembering or making commentary. And, and clearly recognize that you're thinking. Look thinking right in the eye. It's okay. But you don't have to get on the boat. But whenever it seems, whenever you can, whenever it seems appropriate, nothing else is too compelling. Come back to your breathing. The breathing is a good place to be, the center of it all, breathing in and breathing out.
in order to in order, in order to stay on the gra- uh, dry, stable ba- riverbank of awareness, there's one more thing that's useful to notice, and that is how you're relating to what is happening. What's the attitude you have about winning? Are there some ways in some way in which you're against your experience? And if you can very simply just notice your relationship, how you're relating, how your attitude you have, can you kind of leave that to float down the river? You don't have to get involved with that. You don't have to be that attitude. The attitude is something different than you. Just another boat that you can know, be aware of. And then to end this sitting, you can take a few long, slow, deep breaths. Let your page expand and feel a stronger connection to your body, your chair, your cushion. And then when you're ready, when you're ready, you can open. So with time, people meditate, two two primary things become stronger usually. It comes and goes, there's ups and downs in it all. It's not not like a linear path, but two general things. One is they become, people become calmer. There's more stability, steadiness in the mind. In Buddhism, uh, stability and calmness are almost synonymous. So the mind becomes, the mind becomes more stable, doesn't become so agitated and easily kind of imbalanced <clears throat> as it gets calmer. And the other thing that gets stronger is our capacity to be mindful, to clearly recognize what's happening in the present moment. Not by thinking about it, but just because you see it, you feel it, what's going on, if you're really there for it. As those become stronger, then uh, both the calm and the mindfulness, then we start understanding much better that uh, uh, what are the boats of our life? 
the things that are just kind of coming through, that we don't have to identify, we don't have to get involved in. And often what happens is we very quickly identify with our thoughts, our feelings, the experience of our life. Identify means that we somehow use it to refer back to ourselves, to self-reference ourselves, to our self-definition, our self-worth, you know, think this is who I am. And uh, since all the boats are passing by, all the boats are kind of, you know, temporary, um, if you identify with some of these boats, uh, you're not so stable anymore. You're on the, on the water, you know, going off to sea. You know, you've left the secure ground of free of awareness, awareness. And so um, it's quite something, it's quite a wonderful thing to begin to, to have the ability, the, the lucidity of mind, the clarity of mind, to see something, see a thought as just a thought. It's just a thought. It could be, you know, uh, a thought in the past that really grabbed you by the nose and you really got involved in. So, you know, you're, you're peacefully minding your own business and your neighbor's dog barks and, you know, the thought about your neighbor and how the neighbor's dog bark and they don't listen to you and how they bark in the middle of the night and, and you've got to call the police and do mediation and, you know, those thoughts really grab you by the neck. You see, but as you meditate, as you develop mindfulness, you see that the thought might arise, you hear the dog bark, and the thought arise, your neighbor, and you just, and you just let go go. You see, oh, that's, you don't think. But it's hard to do because some people identify so strongly with thoughts, their opinions, what's imp- what happened to them, what's going to happen to them, their plans. So it seems so important to kind of deal with that. It's a remarkable thing to be to sit down so we can see clearly and be present fully for what's, what our life is, but we're not caught and tangled in our experience. They're just boats going by, just boats by, just so the moment. We can get on if it's useful, we get off when it's useful, we just let them be if it's useful. Thoughts arise, thoughts arise, we just see thoughts as thoughts. Uh, feelings arise, and feelings are deeply respected in the Buddhist tradition. Emotions are all, all, all emotions have value, they're important. But the way to respect emotions is to really be present for them without being for or against them. It, it's all okay. Just let it be. And so this idea of just, just, you know, I don't want to, dis- not, not by the, to dismiss it, but to say, it's just an emotion. That's what it is. Just another boat. And it's, we want, but by, but by expecting it, just be with it. Same thing with body sensations, strong, whatever it is. As it comes stronger and stronger, then what arises is greater wisdom. And wisdom in Buddhism is a great ending, ending about how our life works, how our mind works, how we function. And, um, and so uh, there's a lot of, lots of wisdom and deeper understanding that comes. Uh, one of the pieces of wisdom is that, um, uh, is that a thought is just a thought. And you don't have to give it a lot of authority unless it's useful to do so. But many people have never thought about, never considered how much authority they give a thought. They think if they think it, it must be real. Some people identify so strongly with their thoughts that they think that they are their thoughts. But you're not your thoughts. Thoughts are just thoughts. And so part of the wisdom is to see, oh, it's just a thought, it's just something. And then to start becoming free, because just allow, allow the thought to be, it can be you, as opposed to being entangled. As we start, we start, start seeing, seeing how we often overlay our experience with a concept. 
if, if thinking is more complicated, a concept, an idea. And, and then we start seeing that the idea we have might be acne, but it's still, still an overlay on the experience. So it may be, maybe initially when I give this example, maybe it won't have much meaning. Bear with me, bear with me, persevere. The, um, so we have here, uh, uh, I think we, we here, around here we call it a bell. But um, uh, I've seen objects just like this, just like this in Burma, there's this. Is it a bell or is it a spittoon? I've seen objects just this size and just this shape used as something that's kind of sacred in Buddhism or close to it, which is the alms bowl of a monastic. Monks go out there in the streets every morning to gather the food for the, the, food for the day if people want to feed them. They don't, otherwise, they don't have any food. And so they go with these bowls like this in the streets. and They're not even supposed to ask. They just walk down the streets with their bowl. And if people want to support them in their practice, people put food in their bowl and then they have food for the day. And so, you know, it's a begging bowl. What is it? Is it a bell? Is it a begging bowl? Is it a spittoon? We could probably use it as a doorstop and turn it upside down and use it as a, as a you know, I don't know. What? A helmet. A helmet. Yeah, put it on your kid's head, you know. And uh, so all kinds of things. So the bellness, uh, this object, the bell of it is a concept and idea that we assign to it because by the function we have at the moment. And what's fascinating to mind gets quieter. You can start seeing there's a difference between the object, object and the idea. It's a, so, so, big deal, right? So here, here's an example. As the mind gets able to see more clearly, as calmer and sees, and everything's not just a buzzing confusion of a lot of different things. We start seeing how these things are constructed, how it happened. Here's an example. So, um, so here's a flower, just a flower, beautiful little flower, and um, and you could we could just sit here and enjoy the flower and you know have romantic ideas about perfection of a flower and how wonderful flowers are and how flowers are symbolic of oh, the open flower is symbolic of the open mind of enlightenment. It's great, but then um, I can uh, do something. I can put. I put another, lift up another flower and put it next to it. Now I can something that I couldn't really say before. Now I can say the first flower is the big flower and the, sec- and the second flower is a small flower. That's right, big, small. So now watch this, watch the magic trick. And you can actually watch how this light of works. This is big one. And this is the small one. So what do you think now? What happened to the big one? Look, right in front of your eyes, the big one became the small one. Big and small are not inherent in the flower. The flower is just a flower. It's beautiful. It's, we appreciate it for what it is. You know, I think probably most of you don't think that this flower is inadequate. It's just a flower, right? The flowerness of the flower is just there. But... If we, but the idea that it's a big it's the flower belongs, belongs to the ideas of the mind that's doing the comparison. And it's an activity of the mind. Thinking goes on, goes on. 
And it's so ingrained, and you know, we don't even think of it. You don't even think this is, of course, you don't even, you know, this is so obvious, this is a bell, that you don't think that you're making it up in your mind. You know, you didn't make up this is a bell, this is a bell. Bell. It's like, like you don't make up that you're worse than someone else or better than someone else. That's just obvious, right? <laughs> That's the nature of the universe. You're better or you're worse or something. But you're just you. You're like a flower. You're just you. Until you compare yourself to someone else. And in the comparison, for the most part, we suffer. And a lot of suffering that people have occurs because of this activity of our mind making these comparisons. So as the mind gets calmer and clearer and can see, you have to be really in the present moment, there starts to be wisdom about how the mind makes these comparisons. It's just another boat to get onto. And you realize at some point that the comparisons are extra, they're not needed. It's okay just to be you. And part of the, part of the pleasure, the real delight of something like meditation, for some people it's one of the only places they come to where they finally just let themselves be themselves without the burden of all these ideas and concepts we put on top of ourselves. Uh, you know, I have to be a certain person, I have to be a certain role, I have to accomplish, I have to prove myself, I have to defend myself, I have to not, I have to, you know, you know, you know all kinds of things. We, um, in the social world, is so complicated, right? And we compare ourselves. Um, when I was, um, I was 13. It was 1967, and I was living in Italy in the, that summer. And I, uh, I had uh, the longest hair of any Italian boy, and I was the only one with blue jeans back then. It's kind of a radical thing to have blue jeans. And, um, and you know what? I was cool. <laughs> and I could feel it. I knew it. That was very nice. At the end of the summer, I flew back to Los Angeles. And a lot had happened in California the summer of 67 that I wasn't part of. And lo and behold, my hair was not long anymore. There were other people who had a lot longer hair. And I just had blue jeans. Somehow my friends during that summer had figured out you could bleach your blue jeans, you can put them to the washing machine ten times. Some people actually put their, wa- their blue jeans on the road so cars would drive over them. And they were cool, right? But, but I just had ordinary blue jeans in my, and I would be in school pulling out my hair to try to make it longer. So, you know, all I did was cross the Atlantic. <laughs> I was cool and had all this energy about myself in one setting and the other setting. I hadn't changed at all, hardly at all. I mean, you know, and now I was deflated. <laughs> oh, do I really have to go to school? It's, it's, it's so painful, this world, this game of comparative thinking we do. And we do it in such many subtle and powerful and deep ways in our lives. We can do it with illness and pain kind of many of the kind of common challenges of our life. We add burden burden on it because all these ideas and concepts we have on top of it. Just let ourselves be who we are. 
And our society doesn't help sometimes because our society does it for us, right? We'll have, we'll project all kinds of, it isn't like you, you're, you're just yourself, right? And your society tells you, well, you're less than or you're more than than everyone else. And so then you have this burden of other people's concepts and ideas that are consequential in how they treat you. But in meditation, you can learn to be free from being caught by your ideas and other people's ideas. And it can be a real relief. And it's part of the relief of meditation. It's just You're allowed just to be. You can just be the flower. You can just be you. Isn't that nice? You don't, there's, no, there's nothing in the manual that says you have to compare yourself to someone else. Or compare yourself to yourself and how you were yesterday or how you think you want to be tomorrow. You can just be. So this kind of, to have insight and see how this works is part of the wisdom that comes in Buddhism. And so there's a, you know, that's an example. So there's a whole kind of array of wisdom that begins to surface in people's lives that comes uh, as a byproduct of being present in a calm, mindful way. Um, but it takes being mindful, it takes being engaged and looking and being present. Ah, so we start very, sim- we always want to keep it simple. So start with the breath. Train yourself in the breathing just to be present with the breath, just the breath, this breath. You don't have to compare it to the last breath. You don't have to compare it to the person's next to you who's breathing. It's just your breath, just this. And, uh, and then you learn how to be present for your breathing. Learn how to be present for physical sensations in your body. Learn how to be present for your emotions. Learn how to, then learn how to do it with your thoughts. The idea is to keep it really simple. And the idea is the simpler and simpler you get, a lot of this wisdom just shows itself clearly. So it's not meant to be, a, you have to think a lot, figure anything out. But it's more like you're clearing the, all the, one of the analogies and one of the ideas in Buddhism, metaphors in Buddhism, is you're, you're clearing the dust from the mirror. So then the mirror can show itself clearly what's there. Make some sense? Okay. So any questions about that? Yes. So maybe the, pass the mic up on the stage. Where's that mic? Up on the stage there. And you can. Waiting for the mic. Green light. Hi. Um, all of your examples, I think, uh, had to do with self reflection and comparison. And I'm wondering if the same concept of concepts. Um, exists out with other people I'm going through a breakup and I'm finding myself angry a lot and judgmental a lot and I'd like to quiet that yes and so I'm wondering if there's a way to apply this oh, absolutely in my thinking of, of other people oh another it's, re- person. it's really it's really important I think we all need to learn this because we do a lot of uh, a lot of unkind a lot of pain in our world by how we apply our concepts, ideas on others who are maybe completely innocent or maybe not so innocent. <laughs> but even, you know, but we, you know, so to learn to be actually, actually to, to learn to watch your mind clearly and to see what we're overlaying on top of the person and to maybe tease apart what's fact and maybe what's interpretation and opinion is a very powerful, and as a society we need to do that. 
you know, racism in our society is huge, right? And so that's it functioning in the mind. You know, the mind is doing that to other people. So, but if you can watch and see it, rather than think that it's true, then so certainly with a breakup, and uh, but you want to be uh, uh, so if you can tease apart a little bit and see what's extra, what you're putting on top of it, uh, it make it make you wiser in how you deal with it. But all, but it might be the first task for you is uh, since you have tears right now. It might be the first task is uh, wait a little bit with that about looking at your projections, your ideas for the other. But maybe first you just have to attend uh, compassionately to your own feelings. And so this is where you be mindful of your anger, mindful of your sadness. And you don't have to get on the boat, uh, but you don't have to repress it or stop it either. And, but you don't have to feed it. But, but that's why I think meditation, even metaphorically, but they did meditation of sitting somehow upright like this, not collapsing, not making a fist, just sitting like this and just tr- uh, learning to be present for what... It's okay to have those feelings. And then let, let them kind of show themselves to you and let them kind of just unwind or do what they need to do and let them settle. And when, when they're more settled and more understood and you cared for yourself, then it's probably the time for you to have a more clear insight about how you're doing your relationship to the other. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Um, this kind of tonight's dis- discussion that you've given reminds me a lot of I think it was week two with shooting arrows. Yes. And um, one thing that I've been kind of thinking about is you know how do you you know how how do you protect yourself? It seems like so many people are going around shooting arrows at you and themselves and just constantly impatient and frustrated and it's it almost feels like you have to don like a suit of armor to prevent these arrows from coming to yourself and in some ways you know i through this course i've you know recognized a lot of of what i do and project onto myself and and feel like it's been really useful to try to separate experience and thought and emotion and and the breath and everything like that. But it makes me sad to see so many other people go through it. You know, it's like I can see what they are saying and doing, and it's not not to be like a psychotherapist, but, you know, how do you, like, not be sad about, you know, constantly being around all these people that are just living their lives, like, totally out of sync? The way way not to be (laughs) sad is to have compassion. And, um, and in that kind of situation, if, you, if there's a certain kind of sadness, which means that you're a little bit caught up in it, a little bit reactive to it. Um, as the mindfulness gets stronger and the calm, relaxed, clear mindfulness becomes stronger, we become more of an of a open, clear channel for feeling the feeling situations of others. And, um, and uh, most people in this kind of, doing this practice find that their capacity for compassion grows and becomes compassion. So they say it's almost like compassion is a natural outcome of having this balanced, open, non-reactive mode of being. And, this, and more often than not, sadness is in some kind of reaction, some kind of caught in some evaluation, some kind of self-reference self, um, uh, to it all. Um, uh, so, you know, you might see, so seeing the compassion, having compassion for how other people are 
is really invaluable. I mean, compassion, what it means is understanding that they're suffering. But understanding your suffering and seeing it through compassion. Um, and then what you said first, you know, you have to don a suit of armor because of all these arrows people are shooting at you. Uh, yeah, sometimes you have to protect yourself. Sometimes you have to do something, you know, and not be around places, people that are being harmful, for sure. Um, and, um, but again, the wisdom side of this practice, as, the, as we get into it deep, more and more deeply, the mindfulness gets stronger and, and we develop more stability, we're, you know, we're more stable in different situations, we're not gonna, then a very interesting thing gets discovered. And that is that uh, many times when you thought that you were hurting because the person shot an arrow at you, um, you realize that the arrow never reached you. The arrow that hurt is the one that you shot. So, you know, do anything, so an example would be, you know, if I say, you know, the, you know, that women who hold mics with yellow tops are not cool. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I shot a good arrow at her, didn't I? <laughs> you know, but, you know, you know, hopefully that is a good example. The example, I don't think that, you know, that me makes that, you, you seem like you're pretty self-confident. I don't think you're going to care much about what I say about the mic we handed you. <laughs> you know, I know. But you might. And so, but you might mean, oh no, the teacher has singled me out, he's told me I'm not cool, I must be true, you know, I'm, it's embarrassing. All those are your arrows. Well, I think it just depends on who it comes from. Yes. And and that's what makes it, you know, so not to be personal, but I realize a lot of this is my mom. And <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure everybody can relate, right? And my mom shoots a lot of arrows. And, and I don't... You know, and and I don't think she even realizes it. And it's just, and it's hard because it's like you say to get away from that. But, you know, I can't just say like, I'm sorry, mom, you're just too negative. (laughs) You shoot too many arrows and I need to get away from you. No, but what you learn is you learn not to let them hit you. Right. You learn not to pick them up, not to, you know, that's, so it's not easy to do, but as uh, that's part of the stability and the mindfulness that uh, gives you a place where you can enter into a situation. You know yourself so well and you're so balanced that someone could say something and you're like, it doesn't, doesn't land anywhere. Right. So the story of the, from the Buddha's time of a man who was angry with the Buddha and he came to the Buddha to give him a piece of his mind and the Buddha said to him, um, if you uh, invite a guest to your house to dinner and they come and they come with a gift but you don't refuse, but you, but you, don't, you don't accept the gift uh, who does the gift remain? Who, who, who then owns the gift? And so the man said, "Oh, uh, it's the person who came with the gift. If, the, if, if, if it's not if it's not taken, then it still belongs to the person who came with it, right?" And the Buddha said, "Well, in the same way, uh, I don't accept your anger, <laughs> so it stays with you." That's a good way. So maybe uh, one more. But you've been trying, right? I think so. I think your hand went up first, almost first. I think so. Okay, so I understand a lot what you're saying about, you know, 
slinging the arrows at yourself and, and all of that. And that makes a lot of sense to me and sort of not being judgmental, being forward against it when it comes to sort of what I'm doing with myself. But I, I feel like they're sort of like, that's all fine sort of like internally, but then there's the real world. And like, I have three small kids and I have to make judgments all the time about whether it's acceptable to go to nursery school with no pants on or, you know, whatever. (laughs) And, and I have to, I mean, I guess in a way I'm comparing like, you know, pants to no pants and saying you need to wear pants to school. And, and I feel like, you know, people, you know, I mean, I used to actually have a job that didn't involve pants or no pants, but um, it, 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 it feels like part of being good at my job and part of being able to operate is the ability to make judgments and comparisons and say this is good enough and this is not good enough. And so I feel like like all of this is kind of like something you do that's nice in the morning, but then when you get out <laughs> into your real life, no, no. I don't yeah, really I think- understand how to continue to do that. And you know, I can't just be like, well, you don't want to wear pants. There it is. Like, because some, something has to happen. Yes, I agree. Um, I agree. So, I completely agree. We we have to make comparisons. We have to make judgments. We have to understand the context and what's appropriate and not appropriate all, a lot of the time. But as you begin understanding clearly that this is a judgment, this is not the truth, then uh, you have more freedom to know what to choose and what not to choose. The the idea of uh, pants and no pants, you know, that's kind of interesting, <laughs> you know, to school. And, uh, you know, and probably you, you probably pretty clear what you do in our kind of society in that kind of se- setting. But, um, but uh, what about uh, the boy who wants to go to school in a dress? So, you know, is that okay? I mean, it's fine with me. I don't know. But, like, but, again, it, isn't that a, so, so isn't that fine, a judgment? It's, it's, it, it is. But... Uh, 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 some people, you know, society has all kinds of opinions about what boys should wear. And so, uh, before, you, you know, all those opinions and ideas and what other people will say and everything rush in as a whole big complex and it's just a whole big package. It's just kind of like, you can't wear a dress to school. You know, you have to wear, you know, pants. And, uh, and so then, but, we don't, but as we become clearer and more mindful... We start seeing all these ideas, how they operate, how they, come, they arise and where they're coming from. And we have much more choice about what to choose and not to choose. And so there might, you're saying, you know, with the, with the, whether to wear pants or no pants is obvious. Maybe for you, a boy wearing a dress is obvious. It's fine with you. But there might be some areas that are gray area. And then you have to, uh, you have to, have, you have to make a decision but you have to, uh, it really helps to make the decision if you know all the values and beliefs and conditioning and social values that are crowding in and see, oh, that's this, that's that. I don't have to pick that one up, but this one maybe is useful. A calm mind can start seeing the landscape and make wiser decisions. So it's okay to tell her, you have to wear pants to school because you are able to see that you are being influenced by what society is saying, but you're just saying, but you're determining that that is, uh, you know, that yes, you're going to let society dictate that she has to wear pants to nursery school. I think in our society, that's what it comes to. I think there's probably societies where it's fine not to go to school with pants on right. for little kids. They basically run around naked. And, uh, <laughs> right. and, um, 
I remember I was in the village in uh, the Amazon basin, and uh, and the young teenage girls went around topless, you know, in the village, and you know it seemed like that was normal. It's like that's okay, and um, but how many teenage girls do you do? We, will we allow walking down El Camino topless? <laughs> well, you know, we have a different society, and um, and so. What's you know again? So what's helpful, I think, for people who can really see how these things work, is then not to confuse uh, ethics with social concepts and ideas. So this is an idea that society has. This is not inherently an ethical, deep, you know, issue in terms of in and of itself. But it might be somewhat ethical in the sense that we don't want people to feel hurt, to get hurt, and maybe it's just too confusing for our society to have your kid go to school with their, you know, bottom half naked. And it, it's, it's too confusing, it's just too disruptive. So, um, anyway, so, so I think the mind that's quiet and calm can, can see the landscape much better. And also to understand um, uh, uh, the basis upon which we're making our decisions. And in Buddhism they put emphasis on you should understand the evidence or the basis of the authority behind those beliefs that you act on. So if you're acting on beliefs because it's your religion has told you, you know that's the case. If it's because of your logic, if it's because of your society, you know that's coming from your society. And so then there's more freedom, there's more ease, there's more, uh, more, more, you're more at ease or more can flow with it all in a wiser way than if you don't see where the sources of authority are. Okay. Yeah, so one of the great ones was um, taking my kids to Safeway I mean, you guys mentioned this the other day. I mean, Safeway, and when they're really small, and they see something they want, and they can't have it, and they have a fit in Safeway, I mean, bawling and screaming. I mean, you wonder whether people, I wonder if people are going to call protective services. <laughs> because my kid was in the little, small enough, was in the little cart, right, being pushed around, but, you know, looking at me like I'm, you know, been torturing them for years, you know, and, and everyone's like, people are looking, and, and so what comes up in my mind is, well, now these people think I'm an awful parent. I'm probably a failure as a parent to allow this, to do this, and, you know, and, um, and so to, uh, to, I've done this, right, to say if it happened once, you know, to watch the thoughts in my mind, to see how these thoughts were concerned about other people thought about me, and to, you know, I, I know what this, this is about. Uh, it's not appropriate to give in to the kid. The kid's not being hurt. This is a situation where they just let the kid do what they're doing. It's unfortunate for making all this noise for these good customers at Safeway. I, I regret that. Um, but, but if they're going to judge me for being a bad parent, that's their thought. And I don't have to get involved with my arrows inside of what that means. So that's a decision is made about, you know, I'll stay with it, this, I'll hold the course. But in the past, before I was mindful, I, was, I would have, might have given in somehow to, those people are going to be judging me. And I better get out of here as quickly as I can. <laughs> or I better go back and get the candy. <laughs> you know, because because it's, not good for the, it's not good for my kid, but it's good for me not to be judged by the other parents, you know. Customers, you understand? So, so the mindfulness kind of gives us more understands the landscape and you have much more choice and wisdom about how to operate in it. Okay. So, um, 
so, so far, for the most part in this course, I talked about meditation practice, mindfulness meditation. But uh, your mind is the same mind in meditation session as it is in daily life. And the skills and what you learn about how to be present in meditation is meant really to also be used in your daily life as you go about your daily life. So you can learn how to be more present for your experience as you're doing it. Like my friend Kamala Masters was really present washing her dishes, being present with your kids when you're with your kids, being present for really learning how to have presence for your experience. And uh, life works a lot better if you're really present for it. And then uh, if you, um, and then to learn how to be present for the details of the moment, to learn how to have a wise ability to be present for your emotional life, to learn how to be wisely present for your cognitive life, which we've been talking about tonight, to be wisely present for your physical life, you know, how whatever's going on in your body and stuff. And to learn how to, to tease this apart. So learning how to be more mindful in daily life makes daily life work a lot easier. And so one of the ways to continue and develop this mindfulness practice is to begin to bring more mindfulness into your daily life activities. One of the benefits of that is that the more you bring mindfulness in daily life, the easier it is to meditate, generally. And the more you meditate, the easier it is to bring it into your daily life. They work hand in hand. So there are simple ways of bringing it into daily life. You know, something you, it's a skill that you want to develop over time. And so um, uh, you want to start looking for s- small places in your life where you might take them as times where you're going to try to really develop mindfulness. So it could be something as simple as, uh, I don't know if it's simple, but um, uh, if you drive to work, drive someplace, uh, you, uh, you, uh, from the time you get out of your car until you get to the door of your workplace, you do walking meditation. You're really present for just walking. And you're not thinking about the day or planning or, you know, just involved really there for that. If you're washing dishes, you do the dishes. So you choose for a week to, whenever you do the dinner dishes, you're just really there and use it as a mindfulness <coughs> practice, which means you don't try to get, get the dishes done as quickly as you can. The point is not to get the dishes done. The point is to be mindful when you do the dishes, to be fully there. The point is to learn what happens in your mind when you do dishes. You'd rather not do them. You know, you're judging your fellow dinner mates for how much food they left on their plate. You know, and they did it one more time, and they should be doing the dishes. You know, and you get caught up in a world of fantasy. You know, what do you do that keeps you from just you and the dishes in a very simple, balanced way? Um, The uh, I've known people who have um, put um, little sticky notes on light switches in their home. And every time they're going to turn on the light switch, and this, the, the, the sticky note says, you know, it doesn't say anything, just like a note, just there. It reminds them, every time you turn on the light switch, um, be mindful. Check in with yourself. What's actually happening in the present moment for you? So they oh, I didn't know I was in a hurry. I didn't know I was anxious. Because I checked in. I was mindful for that moment. I've done, for a long time, I did uh, f- uh, phone calls. Uh, I don't know if you're like me, but I used to have this kind of thing where... Um, it was really important to let there be as few rings as possible. Like, it's really important to get there, you know, and get it before, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what was going to happen, but it was important. <laughs> and, um, you know, most people will let it ring for, you know, six, seven rings before they give up, right? And, um, no, two rings, you know. So I learned to, um, just to not answer the phone right away, but to use a few rings, two or three rings, as a time to be mindful, 
to check in. What's happening now? What's happening? You know, if I just tune into myself, what's happening with me? What's happening with my breathing? How's my body? And I, by doing that, I discovered that I was maybe tense. I was preoccupied. I was maybe had a certain strong mood. And by just checking in with that, I was wiser in the phone call because I, know, I knew where I was coming from. But, you know, if I'm all tense and I answer the phone and someone says something and I don't know I'm tense, I'm liable to blurt something out. So just take a moment to be mindful there before answering the phone. Some people, what they like to do is over a course of a year, once a week, at the beginning of the week, choose some, some activity that's going to be their mindfulness and activity thing to do. Dishes, brushing their teeth. Eating a meal is a great one to do. You know, maybe, you know, every once in a while, have a, have a meal in silence by yourself and eat really mindfully. Just be really present for your, your meal. And, um, and so then, um, so then next week, choose another activity. Just go through the, and after 52 weeks, you've gone through many of the ordinary activities of your daily life that you, folding laundry, whatever it might be. Um, and, um, and you've gotten, got a sense of how it can be a mindfulness activity, how it can be something you really develop, mindfulness, presence, calm with, just this activity. Uh, and then they start, to, maybe by themselves, they start to kind of seam themselves together. And you find yourself being more mindful throughout the day. If you want to do that, one of the interesting things you discover as you try to be mindful and just present is all the really good arguments you come up in your mind of why it's not okay to be just present in a simple way for this activity. You have important things to think about. There's important things to feel and be engaged in. And, and anyway, just being mindful for dishes, I mean, that's boring. That's nothing. You know, like, what's that going to do you any good? And so you have to deal with all these voices, all these arguments, and hopefully find your way. But it's, it's really profound what can happen if you go past the boredom and just enter into the moment just washing dishes. You might leave refreshed. You might leave much wiser about yourself, more in touch with yourself. And the next thing you go to, you'll go to in a much more useful way than if you rush through the dishes thinking about who you're angry with and what you're going to say and, you know, how could they have done that? And dishes, dishes, you know, and why do I have to do dishes all the time anyway? They should do it. And then you you finish finish your dishes and you rush into the living room and there they are. (laughs) You're going to tell them. But just do the dishes so much nicer and then you might be wiser when you go into the living room make sense so it's a great thing to do and it's a way of deepening this practice to bring it to daily life the other way of deepening this practice is um, to meditate more (laughs) and uh, I think as I said it's difficult in in, in people working life lay life family life to have enough time to meditate um, so even five minutes is a good thing to do. Um, find little spaces in the course of the day where to do it. Um, there probably more. There's more little spaces than probably you realize where you can take you in five minutes here or there, just to sit quietly. I used to, when I had small kids. Um, I used to um, stop my car about 300 yards from my house before when I was going home in order to meditate for about five minutes. Because 
it was not calm at home. <laughs> it was like, I'd come home, my wife would hand me the kid, it's your turn. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, you know, so I wanted to be prepared. So I would just meditate for five minutes in my car, and that was great. It was very helpful. Um, for a long time in my life, I used to meditate very diligently twice a day. And I found that it, was, it had different purposes to meditate in the early morning as it did in the early evening. But I found it really useful and got a lot of momentum in the practice by meditating every day. I know it's very hard for many people to do, but some people can, and it's really a, really a good thing to do. One of the ways of, um, uh, one of the functions of uh, meditating more is to develop more concentration, more stability, more calm. And the more calm, stability, concentration in the mind there is as we do it, that the, more, uh, the easier it is to have insight, the easier it is to see and be mindful of what's really going on. And so uh, it turns out that uh, focusing on the breathing is also a concentration practice. And it's one of the reasons I like to emphasize the breath as the center of the meditation practice. Uh, you know, if all things are equal, stay with the breath. Stay with the breath. Persist with the breath. Cultivate concentration in the breathing. Um, don't leave the breath too easily. Only if something is really compelling, uh, really calling strongly for attention, do you ter- leave the breath to pay attention to something else. You don't just casually kind of float between things. And that's a way of developing greater concentration. And in our tradition, one of the ways we develop greater concentration together with the mindfulness is uh, meditation retreats. And, um, and that is where you meditate throughout most of the day. And we have day-longs, day-long meditation retreats here at IMC that you can come to. And uh, it's a wonderful way to deepen. And it, they're basically done in silence, except for teaching that I do. And being able to meditate in a silent space with other, pe- other people throughout the day, there's a kind of momentum that builds, a kind of settling that happens, a kind of working things out that happens. It's quite something. And then uh, there are residential, what we call residential retreats, where you go f- overnight, maybe many nights in a row. And so you can just uh, have... Uh, and be in a silent environment with other people. We have a retreat center in Santa Cruz, and about 40 people come. They don't talk, uh, for the most part, so it's mostly silent. It's very pristine and nice, quiet. And, um, and throughout the day, is lots of schedule and support for meditating, I don't know, it's probably nine meditation sessions a day. And, um, and uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a wonderful way of deepening the practice. And some people find that they, they go on retreats the practice gets deeper and then they come back to daily life and they bring that greater depth to having, uh, having a more clear mindfulness applied to their ordinary life as well. It goes back and forth. Um, this coming Saturday, there's a, one of the teachers here named Inez Friedman is going to do a, a day-long retreat that's for beginners. For, and it's kind of we schedule it to be at the end of this uh, series here because some people like to review all the instructions and it won't be silent all day long, it won't be so intense, or it's not usually, it'll be kind of set up for people who are beginners. But if you want to have the experience of uh, being involved in meditation through, you know, a good part of the day, I think, I don't know, if, I don't know the time exactly, 9.30 to 4 or something, um, and experience, you know, spending a day in silence, bring a bag lunch, eating in silence, she'll, she'll give teachings for all these things. She's a very clear teacher. It's wonderful. Uh, she does a great job for this uh, kind of introductory, kind of introductory one-day retreat kind of thing. 
it's, a gra- it's also a great way to follow up here, to get review or to ask questions or to get it again, because it's a lot that I gave you. So, so you know, it's kind of, you know, you know, uh, I used to see people come back two or three times this intro class, and I said, "Am, am I failing?" <laughs> you know, that's no comparison, right? <laughs> and then I decided that uh, no, I think it worked really well, but there's so much here that people come back to kind of hear what they didn't hear before. So if you didn't get it all, don't worry. But uh, that's one option you have to continue. The other is we have uh, starting next Wednesday for four Wednesdays, also following this, intentionally following this course, is we have here, same time, same place, a beginner's practice group. And that's uh, some of the most senior practitioners here uh, will be here to support you. You come and they'll do some of the instructions and reviews. They'll give instructions and other things that support the meditation practice. Um, they'll do some guided meditations and there'll be lots of opportunities for discussion and ask questions. And the people who are doing it are great. And so if you want more support to keep going, come back here next Wednesday. And, and with all these things at IMC, like the, the Wednesday, and which is four, next four Wednesdays, and also the one-day sittings, we're relatively uh, relaxed about things here in terms of people coming and going. The idea being that uh, the assumption is that people have busy lives, important things, family take care of, all kinds of things. So uh, people can come and go as you wish. So you can come, you don't, you don't have to stay for the whole day, for a day long, you come for what works. Um, you can you know, come for the beginning practice group for one of them, the, the first day and the third day, and you don't have to go to in between. Just We're kind of relaxed here that way, as a way of supporting people in this kind of life that is kind of crazy sometimes, right? Um, so what else should I say? What else do I usually say? Yeah, it's too late. Okay. Yeah, they'll have to come back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? Uh, Anything I think I'm... Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, so um, and another place to get you know, kind of a little bit of review, a brief review of meditation instruction is um, it's in our schedule a few times during uh, every, th- every Thursday at 6.15 someone's here giving a short little like 45 minute, one hour instructions that's for beginners. You can come back and get a review and some other times during the month we have things like that on the schedule. Uh, you're very welcome to come back to IMC anytime you want. We have, uh, you know, schedules full throughout the week. Um, the, we have, you know, Sunday morning, Monday evening, sittings, Tuesday morning, uh, Wednesday morning, we call it half-day retreat, Thursday evening are kind of the basic sitting groups, uh, classes, where you come and do some sitting and there's some teachings that go on. And, um, <clears throat> and there's lots of other things that go on here, yoga and... Uh, other kinds of classes and programs. And um, so if it works, if you live close enough and you want to come and continue this here, please feel free and welcome to come back anytime at all. Uh, um, we, we try to be as inclusive as possible. We, um, we don't have membership. So that means that, what I like to say is that means anybody who wants to be a member is. <laughs> and people who don't like to be members of religious organizations, we don't have membership. <laughs> And um, so, but please feel free to come. And you, everyone, yes, we want to be welcoming for everyone to come and come in a way that works for them. So uh, that's probably enough. And um, 
I enjoyed having you here, and you seemed all seemed very engaged and attentive in a nice way. It was, it was nice for me to t- be teaching for you, so I appreciated you all very much, and I and, uh, hope to see you guys again sometime. So thank you. Thank you.